My name is Adira Kopel, and I am the Vice President of the Yeshiva University Student Medical Ethics Society. It is my pleasure to introduce to you our next panel of esteemed speakers, Rabbi Ozar Glickman and Dr. Matthew Liao, who will be having a conversation discussing the ethics of neurotechnologies. Rabbi Glickman is a Rosh Yeshiva of Ritz, where he received his rabbinic ordination. He holds a BA in philosophy from Columbia University um, and an MBA in finance from NYU Stern School of Business. Rabbi Glickman also pursued graduate studies in philosophy and religion at the University of Toronto. As a practicing data scientist on Wall Street, Rabbi Glickman will provide a unique angle on the, big, on the ethics of big data and artificial intelligence. Dr. Matthew Liao is an expert in bioethics and holds a PhD from Oxford University and a BA from Princeton University. He has authored several books and articles and has been featured in many well-known media outlets such as the New York Times, the BBC, and many others. Dr. Liao holds the Arthur Zittrain Chair of Bioethics and is the Director of the Center for Bioethics and is an Affiliated Professor in the Department of Philosophy at New York University. The conversation you are about to hear will discuss the rising issue of digital and biological integration. So now, please join me in welcoming Rabbi Ozer Glickman and Dr. Matthew Liao. Good afternoon, everyone. I have to observe that uh, at the uh, last meeting of the Russian Yeshiva, uh, my Rebbe Rabbi Tender came in and he said, how are you, young man? Then I listened to the first session about the plenary session about aging and discovered that that's an inapt description. I'm actually much older than I thought I was. I'm so pleased to participate in an event that honors my Rebbe Rakhmoshin of Tenvashlita, who set in motion the process that brought me to Yeshiva University over 20 years ago. Yeah, it's that long. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> courage for the sake of Torah, whose stamps itself truth, has defined his lustrous career. Through the grace of God, we'll have this council leadership for many years to come. Thank you, Reverend. This is a teaching moment, and I would uh, embrace it to introduce our session with the incomparable Dr. Matthew You should have wondered when you saw the advertisement why one name was listed as just rabbi among all these distinguished medical doctors and academics. I have been in the medical field for over 60 years. I've been a patient. <laughs> Although I've done graduate work in philosophy, Dr. Lau is a philosopher in the discussion, and of course on the most important level, we're all philosophers, but you know what I mean. And I'm not a proponent of the Das Toter view that mastery of halakhic dialect confers expertise in every sector of life. So what am I doing sitting up here? I'm really here in another role this morning. In my mercantile life, I work actively in data science. I'm a member of the senior advisory board of Oliver Wyman, a global management consulting firm. I've led a team of engineers using artificial intelligence to model the preferences of investors in the global equity markets. I'm starting another project tomorrow that will turn the decision-making of a group of highly experienced portfolio managers investing in credit-risky companies into an expert system. 
there's a virtuous circle, which we heard in an earlier presentation, in the application of technology. It may start with academics. Some of them may be neuroscientists, biologists, and physicians. Where the testing and refinement comes in is where the models succeed and fail is with the rich data sets and the incredibly powerful technology applied by corporations, advisors, and practitioners. A prominent radiologist described to me yesterday on the way home from Shul how IBM is revolutionizing the way doctors will read film in the years ahead. In fact, they probably know at all as everything is digitized and neural networks process far more data than the human version could ever hope to do. So armed with the vocabulary of the graduate student philosophy and the sensibilities of a rabbi, this data analyst and model builder is here to pose questions to a leading figure in what is for me one of the most fascinating fields today, the intersection of neuroscience and moral philosophy. Thank you to my brilliant student, Gabriel Stern, and the wonderful Stern women I've encountered in preparing for this session, uh, especially Sarah Wiener. And so I'll begin with a few questions of my own, and then we'll segue into the thought experiments created by our students. Okay. So Dr. Lau, a few of us on Wall Street, we talked a little about Kathy O'Neill, who's going to appear in the volume that you're in, right? So, uh, are somewhat discomfited by the rise of big data. Data mining is for us a pejorative term. As Kathy has argued persuasively in her bestseller, Weapons of Math Destruction, the models that drive so much of our world today can increase inequality by submerging the idiosyncratic in the statistical mean of expected behavior. The epistemology upon which these models are built, that everything we need to know is in the data itself, has never been adequately grounded in philosophy. It seems to me to be simply another version of the problem of induction. Are there dangers in the application of neuroscience in the very idiosyncratic world that's made up of individuals? None of us is a statistical distribution. We're all a population unto ourselves. I'm thinking of some of the issues raised in the neuropsychiatry of moral cognition and social conduct in chapter 9 of Moral Brains, which should be, by the way, there it is, it should be in everyone's library. I've done my part to boost the Amazon rankings. I own both the paperback and Kindle editions. <laughs> Stated more simply, do we lose the individual in the subversion of the particular into the aggregate? At what point does neuroscience stop being descriptive and start being proscriptive? Does that raise warning flags? So first of all, I just want to uh, uh, thank uh, Gabriel Stern for inviting me to be here. It's a great honor to be here and to be here in a conversation with Rabbi Goodman. Uh, so to your question, I think that big data ethics, that's sort of one of the biggest topics that's coming up now. So today, I think just coming here, I was reading that um, apparently uh, Amazon 
wants to put Alexa. So Alexa is this sort of uh, this device where you can kind of stick to it and uh, you can order, you know, you can sort of tell it to turn on lights and sort of turn on music, etc., etc. And it's kind of beyond all the time. People are, uh, you know, getting. I mean, you know, I actually just bought one for my grandmother because uh, so that I, you know I can you can just literally drop in and sort of she'll show up uh, and then she'll be able to talk to me. Uh, uh, on the phone, like she won't even have to pick up the little screen. So Amazon is actually going to try to push Alexa into classrooms now. Um, and one of the dangers of Alexa is just, uh, it just comes up with the issue of privacy. So Alexa basically is on the time. And it's listening when, when you place it in the home, in the classroom, it's listening all the time. And it's processing, and so that is ready when you say Alexa, you know, turn on lights, ready to sort of respond to your commands, um, and so on. Um, but there are big issues because it's uh, sort of it's recording everything you're saying, um, and it's so that you can process, right? And it gets better when there are a lot of people who are using it. Uh, just kind of like uh, uh, the GPS on your phones, right? It works better. It works really well in New York because everybody has a mobile phone, and it tracks the data in your movement. So I was in uh, Mexico, uh, sort of last year, and it didn't work so well because people actually didn't use the GPS. <laughs> so we need data. All these technologies need data. And it's personal data. And some of it is innocuous, but it raises questions such as, I was just going to give you a very concrete example. So uh, there was a murder scene, uh, sort of, uh, I think maybe about six months ago. And now they're wondering whether they can compel Amazon to reveal Alexa. And there was an Alexa. Uh, in that phone. And so now can Alexa be used to testify against you? Right? So those are issues that we're going to, at least new technologies, I'm a sort of uh, uh, techno, like, I'm very enthusiastic about technology, but at the same time, they raise a lot of ethical issues that we need to be uh, thinking about. And so, uh, so that's sort of how I would uh, begin to um, uh, think about some of these issues. Another thing about sort of, uh, I'll just mention one other thing because uh, you mentioned the work of, of uh, Kathy O'Neill. So yeah. it turns out that data is not innocuous. So uh, a lot of uh, um, policing, for example, now they're using a lot of, they're, they're using something called autom uh, autom uh, automatic suspicion uh, uh, algorithm, or uh, and this is sort of to use to sort of for sentencing purposes to determine sort of whether someone should uh, uh, get parole. But the problem is uh, uh, with uh, sort of these uh, sort of these algorithms is that it's basically garbage in, garbage out. And so it turns out that uh, when you feed data into this information, it, it, use, it uses sort of the background of the person, the race of the person, uh, the location, etc., etc. And that could have a very biasing effect. So it turns out that, say, African Americans turn out to get, they don't get on the road because of the suspicion algorithm. And that's a big problem because it's not, and, and, and judges are sort of using these as sort of decision, you know, like to help them with their decisions. And so that could be common for another sort of problem. But say, who gets a mortgage today, by the way? Yeah. Based on who gets credit cards? Uh, the, the thing that made me worry about is if I had Alexa and I hadn't gotten it, because if Amazon were listening into the conversation at home, 
then they might pre-order books on marriage counseling. <laughs> Rather not have that known. Okay. Um, our session leaders and I spent a lot of time on Professor Joshua Green's discussion of consequentialism versus deontology in moral arguments. For those not familiar with the vocabulary, would you briefly define them and expand a little bit on their, their importance? Sure. So consequentialism and deontology, they're two of the major moral theories sort of non-secular uh, moral theories. And so consequentialism basically says that you should try to do that act that will produce the best outcome, right? And in sort of stated like that, that doesn't seem to be very crucial, right? Um, we should, you know, make sure that the act has good outcomes. Um, but it runs into a lot of problems. So, um, so for example, you know, if you're, uh, um, you're a doctor, right? know that there are many physicians in the room, so you know there's a healthy patient who just came into the, the, the room, but you have five patients in the next room who need sort of organs of different sorts, right? And so if you're a consequentialist, you might think, well, here are five people I can save, and here's one person. Maybe I can just, you know, uh, take the organs, you know, of this person and put it into these five people. So that would seem to produce the best outcome. But that's what sort of that's sort of a, a problem with uh, consequentialism. Um, but of course, there are more sophisticated versions of consequentialism. So uh, you know, consequentialists will say, "Well, that's true. So maybe we should, you know, imagine if you done it secretly, nobody found out about it, right? Then that'd be okay, right?" Or another version is, "Well, uh, we have some sort of low-level rules to prevent people from do, doing that." But really, you know, in extreme situations, it should be okay to. And so then you have the deontological theory. So the, the main uh, arguments against sort of the other moral theory, sort of deontology, basically saying that consequentialism uh, matters, but they're not the only thing that matters, right? There are other things, things like rights, uh, an agent's intention, uh, and fairness, etc., etc. Uh, and that that's also relevant. And so a way to figure out. Um, so it turns so this debate has been going on for a long time. And some of you might be familiar with something called the traveling problems. Okay, so the traveling problems is sort of imagine that <clears throat> the trolley is going, you know, there's a trolley, it's a runaway trolley, it's about to go down the track and hit by um, it's going to turn. But then you can, there's a lever, you can switch the lever, and it'll go on to the side track showing the one. So is it okay to do that? How many people think it's okay to switch the lever? Okay. So a few people. Um, then, but so there, I, I, it turns out that people have done this survey. So Josh Green's done a survey like this where there are over 300,000 people around the world from different cultures uh, and answered variations of this problem. It turns out that many, most people think that that's okay. It, that it's okay to do it because, and one reason might be something like because uh, you don't really intend to kill the person on the side track, you're just trying to save the five people, etc., etc. But now imagine a variation of that case. So imagine that there's uh, sort of you're standing over a footbridge, right? And there's someone who's really big, and you can just push that person, so the trolley again is going to work for five people. And you can push this person with a heavy backpack, let's say, 
and then the person will fall in front of the track, and then the, the trolley will hit the person, and it will stop saving the five. So how many people think it's okay to push the person? Yeah. So like like much like fewer people think that it's okay to do that. But it's really interesting because in both cases it's five versus one. So if you're a consequentialist, you're going to think, um, well, look, it's just you know, it's five versus one. What's the difference here, right? And so the consequentialist, uh, the deontology, uh, it, you know, has different theories about why that's okay. So in, in, the, in the, the pushing case, the deontologist is going to say something like, well, one explanation is going to say something like, well, you're using the person as a means to save the guy. Notice that in the first case, when you switch on to the sidetrack, you don't need to use the person. If that person weren't there, you would have saved the five. But in the, in the second case, you can't uh, save the five unless you use that person's body. Right? So some people think that you know that's problematic. But what's really interesting about Josh Green's work is, so anyways, this debate, and there were many iterations of the trolley problem. But what's really interesting about Josh Green's work is that he wants to say that uh, so he's a consequentialist, and he wants to say that actually looking at uh, our moral brains can settle, can help us settle this intractable debate. And how does he say that? So the way he, and so he got a bunch of people, uh, sort of like, uh, he put a bunch of subjects in their fMRI, functional magnetic uh, resonance imaging. And he asked questions that I just asked you, right? And then he found out, um, and so um, he then he sort of, uh, Yeah, 
Yeah, so that, that, that's, that's a really good question. So uh, the, uh, you know, the brain scan, so, you know, sort of what's the significance of the brain scan? How can it settle? Like, that seems like empirical, some sort of empirical data, right? How can that settle a moral issue? Seems like, right? But, so, let me give you a, 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 an analogy. So say that you are uh, out one night with your, uh, your friends and you're debating about some sort of some issue, right? And you both have been sort of, you've been drinking a lot of wine, right? Okay. So now, um, you know, and then you and your friend uh, disagree. And then at some point, your friend sort of says to you, and then you can't seem to like resolve the disagreement. Then your friend points out to you, hey, but you can drink, you just drink that whole bottle of wine. Now notice that that's an empirical claim, right? But it has the effect, it has a kind of, like in philosophy, we call it a debunking effect, right? It kind of undercuts whatever you've been saying that whole time, right? It's like, look, you've been drinking. But I, I, you just stated an empirical fact, uh, but somehow we think that, so there's a normative premise there, which is that, you know, our decision uh, making, our thinking doesn't work as well when we're under the influence of alcohol, something like that, right? Uh, but just by stating that empirical argument, that's enough to say, hey, maybe I'm, you know, I don't know what I'm talking about, right? And so Green is trying to do something similar. He's trying to say, look, we thought, you know, that we're all rational, we're all thinking, but in fact, when we look under the hood, sometimes we're compactulating, we're making up reasons, uh, uh, and then in this case, we're just, we're, we're just making up stories to justify this emotional reaction that we have, this sort of irrational emotional reaction. And if we were just more rational, then we would, you know, if we were able to overcome this irrationality, then we would be, we would see that the truth of consolationalism. I'm not a consolationalist, I'm just reporting this argument. So what Green would say basically is that any moral dialectic argument that I make is actually just fake news. Yes, yes, that's right. Well, I, I don't know about any, but he wants to say in this case, in some cases, with respect to, especially uh, cases that have a lot of, there's something he calls the contact principle. So notice that when I give you the example of the, the, the big man on the bridge, you have to sort of push the person, right? And he sort of says, you know, that's sort of based on this evolutionary uh, uh, past where, you know, we really prohibited people from like clubbing each other, right? You know, hitting each other with clubs. So this contact, right? And so we have this visceral reaction. And so he, his explanation is that we're kind of responding to that. And that's why we think, oh no, we shouldn't do that, right? So, so that might be an occasion to rethink the question, but it shouldn't have a, a, a decision factor, you know? In other words, I find the whole idea of what you've been drinking to be an ad hominem attack rather, rather than a content base. So I think the moral questions should rise and fall and be on ontological arguments. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I'm, I'm, I, I agree with you. And, and as you know from the book, I sort of, that's some of the things that I argue. I argue against Josh Green's uh, whole approach. But nevertheless, I mean, the debate between consequentialism and the ontology has been going on for years, like over a hundred years and maybe even longer. So we're not going to solve it here. Well, no, <laughs> so we're probably not going to solve it here. But so what Green, what's novel about Green's work that he was sort of saying, look, maybe this is a way of moving forward the debate. And that part is very interesting. And um, we actually had uh, this uh, woman, Dr. 
already have a model that sort of neural, using neuroscience to look at more ingestion. It's one of the uh, more exciting areas um, in the today. So can I uh, suggest an analogy from the world of economics and finance? I guess you will find on it if you think it's analogous to what neuroscience is doing. But I can also make my <laughs> so there's a revolution in finance and economics that still has years to unfold. Whereas modern finance is built on the notion of the rational person operating prudently based on probabilities and expected outcomes, come along Richard Thaler, who just got the Nobel Prize, Daniel Kahneman, who has a Nobel Prize, Amos Tversky, who died before he could get the, the Nobel Prize, they will awaken us to the non-rational, not irrational, but the non-rational heuristics that frequently drive human behavior. And if I can give an example, investors are frequently more afraid of missing the big move than they are of incurring losses. And this in part explains the surge of Bitcoin. So many individuals do not want to be forced to say they missed the big move, and so they pile into something almost any price. The more expensive it becomes, the more likely they're missing the big bonanza. So we now have two Nobel laureates who study the effects of psychological predispositions in economic behavior. That's the role that I could envision as a rationalist for neuroscience, right? To uncover those predispositions, but not to be given the deciding vote. How do you react to that? Yeah, so it turns out it's, it's so, you know, Taylor and Kastansky uh, has Okay, 
but it's a form of reasoning. And the reasoning goes something like this. You know, when you're in a foreign city, uh, the locals know better than I would, right? And so in a lot of these nudging type cases, we're actually appealing to people's, you know, because decisions are complex, so we're trying to make it easier for them, right? So we're trying to shortcut. But it's still, um, I, I think it's still rational processes. So that's sort of, that, that's what I would say about uh, their cases. It doesn't undermine the, that these could be very effective, but there's a, but they want to tell the story that this is somehow an intuition, whereas I think intuition is along to a different, it's a, it's a different way of knowing when we use intuition. So when I gave you the, um, the trolley cases before, I was asking you to make an intuitive judgment. So especially for those who haven't heard the case. So you know, you're not sort of saying, uh, uh, Rabbi Clinton told me to, you know, that you know, pushing the heavy person is bad, therefore it's bad. That would be a form of reason. You're sort of thinking for yourself, and you're thinking, you know, no, I, I don't think I would do that, right? That's an intuitive judgment, and that's very different. So, okay, so I, I'm trying to uh, carve out yeah. a, a role for neuroscience in, in a moral philosophy discussion. Where, where, what's left for it to do? Does it just unveil my predispositions and my prejudices? Is that, is that what it's meant for? So that I can re-examine them, or does it actually get a vote in the decision-making process? I think the, I think the way I was suggesting in terms of the debunking is exactly that. It kind of reveals. So it turns out, so we, you know, back in this sort of content tradition, we think we're sort of all, always rational. Um, but it turns out that just a lot of social psychology has shown that we make a lot of, we're on autopilot most of the time, right? It's because it's very expensive uh, for our brain, like, so it takes, uh, it takes a lot of energy to be thinking about every decision, like, sort of calculating every decision every time, right? So we are, we're sort of on autopilot most of the time. And that's really interesting because, but what that doesn't settle, so some people want to draw the conclusion, Oh, that therefore shows that we're not rational at all. And so I think that conclusion is a bit too hasty because it could be based on prior reasoning, right? It could be that, look, you figured it out. I figured out how to get into my subway, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Now I can be on autopilot and know exactly where to go. I don't have to think about it, right? But the first time I did it, I had to get out the map and, you know, really figure out how to get there, et cetera, et cetera. But once you, you know, um, and so I think it's too quick just to look at the, uh, neuroscience data and conclude that these are all irrational processes. They could be, be based on prior reasoning processes. You know, I'm, I'm a man of a certain age and I grew up reading 1984 and Walter Huxley. Yeah. It seems to me that a lot of these, you know, you mentioned the beginning of Alexa and whatever, reminded me of Big Brother and Winston Smith's home. You, uh, you talk about the, uh, you know, bioengineering that reminds me of Brave New World. Um, so many of these things were anticipated and whatever. I think we could do better to temper science a little bit with literature. How do you relate to that? Oh, I, I think that's right. And in fact, I think the literature has been sort of like sort of um, they've been forecasting many of these issues for years, and it's now the science is kind of catching up and kind of making it possible. So you know, before the internet, people I mean, there was uh, uh, the Wire Society was published in 1977, right? And so, Pooch basically sort of the internet, you know, the, you know, so in 1977, the book said that, you know, in about 25 years time, it's actually pretty accurate, it makes it about 2000.
two, you know, sort of uh, 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 three, uh, sort of, it said that, you know, in about 25 years, um, every home will have a monitor, you'll be able to check baseball, sort of like, you know, rebound, sort of uh, baseball scores, you know, like, and, and, and check your stocks, et cetera, et cetera. It's basically the internet that we have today. And so uh, it, it's, it, I think uh, in philosophy, there's something called reflective equilibrium, where we kind of go back and forth. We take some of these literary ideas, and people are actually trying to, this, uh, and then other people, the engineers are saying, hey, can we make that happen? Let's try to make it happen. And so they're building things based on some of these ideas. So I'd like to give you a little bit from Yeshiva University. Uh, we have a, a, a method for reaching reflective equilibrium. We have one day a week when we turn off the internet, our smartphones, and connection to the outside world. And more than that, we preserve that. It preserved us. And so I think it's a, I, you give a good uh, um, background for it. Um, how much are we getting to the? Okay. Did you want to show one of your? Yes. While you're setting that up, I do want to mention that um, in the Rabbi Taylor has his own version of nudge. So I remember that he used to, whenever I run into him, say to me, you know, you really have to take care of yourself. You have to lose weight, you have to exercise, and whatever. So finally, when I lost weight, I saw him, and I said, Rabbi, look, I lost some weight. And his answer was, it's about time. <laughs> Sort of a game from the 
East and is sort of black stones and white stones, and it's sort of very hard to calculate um, sort of the moves. But it beat the world's best go player um, last year. And then AlphaGo Zero was created a couple months ago, where um, this machine, uh, they basically gave it something called, uh, it's called evolution, that is the self-reinforcement learning. It just taught itself. So, so in the old, the old days, people used to, uh, uh, so AlphaGo Zero, AlphaGo was uh, trained by uploading a bunch of human games, and it learned from the human games, and then it then you know, was able to beat the, the, the best human player. And AlphaGo Zero was given no human games whatsoever. It just played against itself uh, uh, four million times. And then after that, it played, uh, the AlphaGo Zero played against AlphaGo. Um, and can you guess, like, like uh, so they played 100 games. What do you guess, what, what, do, you, what do you think the outcome was? It was 100 to zero. The AlphaGo self-learning sort of uh, basically beat the one that was sort of human trained. Now, they took that same technology um, and they applied it to chess. Because they thought, you know, chess is going to be more complicated. It's like, in the Go, it's just black and white and they're just putting down the stones. Like chess, they're actually different moves, et cetera, et cetera. So they used the same idea and they trained the chess program in four hours. And the, that program then played against the world's best chess program right now. It's called Stockfish, right? And it beat that. that it basically like <laughs> you know, they played 100 games. It won like when it played white, it won most of the games. And then when it played black, it played two or all. Um, but um, so that's where we're at in terms of artificial intelligence. And so a lot of people are worried that with uh, the only way that you're going to be able to handle, like they're, they're just getting smart. The machines are coming and they're getting smarter. And how are you going to survive that? The only way for us to survive that is for us to get smarter. And one of the ways of getting smarter is this, right? How can we augment our intelligence? How can we improve our intelligence? So a lot of neuroscience, a lot of the work that the U.S. government does, the Defense Project Agency, uh, they've been sort of looking at ways of enhancing our intelligence uh, uh, sort of in terms of improving memory, in terms of improving alertness, etc., etc. And so, um, so you know, in this context, uh, a lot of you know, Elon Musk is sort of talking about neural links and how we need to be sort of engaging. And sort of basically, we need to go from biological intelligence to digital intelligence. Okay. So one philosophical issue. Is uh, issue that comes up is whether the uploaded, if you were, if your mind were uploaded, is that going to be you, right? And this is a question of identity. And my view is that it won't be you, right? Not so in philosophy we distinguish between what's called numerical identity and narrative identity. So the qualitatively, uh, the the individual that's uploaded might have all your personalities, characteristics, etc., etc. But I think you can't survive the upload. And here's a sort of a quick way to see why, right? Um, well, once it's uploaded, presumably you can make copies, right? And so imagine that you make 100 copies, right? So you can, uh, paper about identity and defending identity, you can only be identical to yourself. A can only be identical to A, 
same exact property. So that means that you cannot be identical to all those uh, hundreds of copies uh, of you. They're not you, right? So, um, so I think that that's going to be a problem. But I think uh, there's a different way by which we can maybe survive. And that's something, uh, so a lot of people now are exploring something called gradual replacement. So the gradual replacement works as follows. You take each neuron and you replace it with something that's kind of organic, right? And then through that gradual process, there, that might, you know, at the end of it, the whole brain becomes inorganic. Right? And then there's a question about whether you can sort of, whether that will be you at the end of it. I think there's an argument to be made that that could be you, but I think the uploading doesn't work. Yeah, I mean, here's a response to me. Yeah. Um, if we had a spreadsheet that was large enough or a tree that was large enough, you could take all the moves in chess or go or whatever, yeah. and you could dial you could actually diagram them, you know what they are. But life isn't that way. Life has so many things that are not diagrammed. And I'll say, I'll just give the example that the rabbi said that a, uh, a, a Roman matron once asked one of the rabbis, what is God doing since uh, creation was over? And they answered that he's putting men and women together. He's making matches between them. Who can predict what a match takes? Who can predict? It's not a, uh, so I would say the most wonderful things about life are not digital. I Thanks very much for uh, being here today. This is the beginning. We're going to have a great friendship. So the beginning. Therefore, that makes it more 
this is a simple, I, I'm kind of simplifying his view of it, uh, but that's sort of one of the arguments that he makes. Can we conclude, by the way, with a, the people that make this really possible, the wonderful students of Yeshiva University?